Hi, welcome to MD Notified, a pediatrics podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Christine Sufjak, and today we're going to be talking about the new CDC treatment guidelines for the management of gonorrhea. These came out in late December 2020, and I was kind of interested to learn a little bit more about both what the new guidelines say and also why the recommendations have been changed. So my thought process for this episode is first we can go through a little bit of gonorrhea history just because I think it's really interesting um, and it kind of sets the stage for the updates in the CDC guidelines. And then we can go through the guidelines themselves. And then finally, I wanted to go through a couple of cases that really highlight a couple different scenarios that you might run into clinically um, because not everyone is managed completely the same. Um, There are some slight variations depending on who you are um, and how you present. So let's get started. So gonorrhea really came to the attention of the CDC in the mid-80s. We know that STDs in general are a huge public health concern, but in particular, gonorrhea has a lot of ramifications for people who get it. Having gonorrhea increases your risk of HIV transmission about fivefold. And what that means is that if you're a person who has gonorrhea and you get exposed to the HIV virus, you have a five times higher risk of actually getting HIV than if you were in that same situation and you did not have gonorrhea. So that's already a huge health risk. Um, But in addition to that, particularly for our female populations, having gonorrhea has a lot of risks. Um, Gonorrhea can lead to pelvic inflammatory disease or PID. It can lead to scarring in your fallopian tubes and that subsequently leads to infertility and you have a higher risk of having an ectopic pregnancy if you have gonorrhea. So those are all things that we really, really don't want to happen. Um, And because of that, gonorrhea itself, in the setting of all the other STIs, um, is a huge public health concern. So this was kind of coming about in the mid-80s, and so the CDC put together this sort of um, project called the Gonococcal Isolate Surveillance Project, or GISP. And what they do is they take samples from various STI clinics across the country, and they monitor them monthly. And they look at what strains of gonorrhea we have and what are the antibiotic resistance patterns that we're seeing. So at that time, we were mostly treating gonorrhea with fluoroquinolones like ciprofloxacin. You know, into the 90s, that's mostly what we were using. And the cephalosporins were available, like cefixime and ceftriaxone. Um, but ciprofloxacin, as you can imagine, it's an oral antibiotic. It's a lot easier to distribute. Um, you can give a prescription and the person's partner could pick it up at the pharmacy, things like that. So it's a little bit easier to use. So lots of people were using ciprofloxacin to treat gonorrhea. Um, But as we move forward in time, by the time we get to the early 2000s, um, ciprofloxacin was really being shown by the CDC GISP data to have increasing resistance. And so in the early 2000s, like 2006, 2007, the CDC came out with guidelines that said, okay, we're not going to use ciprofloxacin anymore. We're going to only use the cephalosporins. So at that point, we had cefixime and we have ceftriaxone. And again, we see this pattern kind of repeat itself. And by the time we're in the 2010, 2011, 2012 timeframe, there was emerging resistance against cefixime as well. 
And so at that point in 2012, cefixime was no longer recommended. And all we had left for our first line treatment for gonorrhea was the one-time 250 milligram dose of ceftriaxone. So even in that short period of time from the 90s to, you know, the early 2010s, we have been knocking off antibiotics that are um, used to treat gonorrhea. And we're just really seeing that antibiotic resistance rise and rise and rise. So it's a really kind of scary thought. And then we look forward from the 2010s to now. um, And the things that we're seeing is in other countries, thankfully not in the United States yet, um, we are seeing gonococcal strains that are resistant to ceftriaxone, which is our last uh, first-line treatment. So it's really kind of scary stuff. Um, we've had cases of ceftriaxone-resistant gonorrhea. Um, and what's interesting about the cases that have been reported, of course, most of these cases are coming from countries that have the infrastructure to be able to monitor, track, and report these cases, meaning mostly it's in Europe and things like that. And what's interesting about that is that we know that we have a lot of gonococcal disease burden happening in Africa and um, places where they don't have those reporting systems really as well in place. So with the information that we have, knowing that that's mostly coming from Europe, what we know is that the cases of gonorrhea that have been resistant to ceftriaxone a higher percentage of those are actually pharyngeal gonorrhea or gonorrhea infections in the pharynx. And so that's kind of an interesting piece of information. And that's something that the CDC has thought about when they came out with our updated recommendations, which we'll talk about shortly. So let's talk about the guidelines as they were in 2010 from the CDC and what they updated it to in December 2020. So in 2010, the recommendation was that we would treat gonorrhea with um, a 250 milligram dose of ceftriaxone um, intramuscular times one. And then we would also treat, when we were treating for gonorrhea, we would throw in treatment for chlamydia because we know that people who have tested positive for gonorrhea are at much higher risk for also having chlamydia. So the thought was we would just treat both at one time and we would do that with a one gram dose of oral azithromycin. In 2020, they switched those guidelines and they said, hey, if you're treating for gonorrhea, you no longer have to treat with azithromycin to treat chlamydia as well. You can just treat for the gonorrhea alone. Um, And we do that with 500 milligrams of IM ceftriaxone times one. So they've increased the dose from 250 milligrams to 500 milligrams. And that's to treat for the gonorrhea. Um, If you have a person who's coming in and they're asking for empiric treatment, and you have not tested them for chlamydia, or let's say you just sent the test and it's gonna take a couple days to come back, and you really wanna make sure you think this is a very high-risk person, you wanna empirically treat them for both, you would also give them chlamydia treatment, um, and that would come in the form of doxycycline. That's 100 milligrams BID for seven days, and that's to treat chlamydia, quote-unquote, if chlamydia has not been excluded. So let's talk about the rationale behind these changes. Number one, um, as I talked about before, azithromycin has been removed from the regimen for gonorrhea treatment. And that's because one, we're not recommending to treat for chlamydia along with gonorrhea anymore. Um, And the reason for that is that 
there has been shown to be increasing resistance patterns to azithromycin in gonococcal strains. And so the thought is that we are creating more antibiotic resistance by doing that and by having that as our practice. So for that reason, they, they took azithromycin out of the picture. And then the second change that was made is they increased the dose of ceftriaxone from 250 milligrams to 500 milligrams. And the reason they did that is because um, we have data that shows that we want high serum drug levels of ceftriaxone for between 20 and 24 hours, and that that higher dose of ceftriaxone, the 500 milligrams, better achieves this goal. And then the second reason that we've increased our ceftriaxone dose is because, as I was talking about before, the reports of treatment failures of ceftriaxone more commonly have been in cases of pharyngeal gonococcal infections. And it's very, very difficult to get steady state levels of drug exposure in that area of the body. So the theory is that by giving a higher dose of ceftriaxone, um, we're getting enough drug to that area of the body to treat both urogenital, rectal, and pharyngeal infections of gonorrhea. Okay, so now we've kind of run through the history of gonorrhea, the history of the antibiotics, the emerging antibiotic resistance, and then the changes to the CDC guidelines. So let's go through a couple different scenarios and talk about how we would implement this in our practice. So first, let's say we have a 17-year-old female. She presents to the ER. She says her boyfriend has cheated on her, and he um, disclosed this information to her, and she said, you have to go get tested. So he does, and he comes back and says, I got tested for gonorrhea and chlamydia, and I have gonorrhea. So she is taking this information and bringing it to the emergency department and asking for testing and treatment. Now, in this scenario, um, you have a pretty high likelihood that this is a person who has a gonorrhea. You know, she's been exposed to someone who has been tested and has gonorrhea. So in this case, we can just go ahead and treat her. You can send the swab and then you can also go ahead and just empirically treat her since it's a high likelihood that she actually has gonorrhea. And for her, she's a 17-year-old female. She has no other past medical history. For her, you could just go ahead and follow the CDC guidelines and say, okay, for your gonorrhea, we're going to give you 500 milligrams intramuscular ceftriaxone times one to treat the gonorrhea. Since we don't think that you have chlamydia, um, that's kind of a provider-dependent call. You can either test her for chlamydia, wait for that test to come back, and then treat based off that. Um, or if you feel like she's very high risk, then you could also add on the doxycycline, 100 milligrams BID for seven days to treat for chlamydia. Next, let's say it's the following day, her boyfriend comes in and the same boyfriend we were talking about before. And he says, yeah, I went to this clinic. I got tested for gonorrhea. I got tested for chlamydia. My gonorrhea test came back positive. My chlamydia was negative. Um, I want treatment too. I know my girlfriend was here yesterday. You say, okay, cool go through his medical history, get him checked in. He is a 160 kilo linebacker. He plays football on their high school team and he's a pretty big dude. No other medical history. Um, what do you give him to treat his gonorrhea? So for him, what's interesting is that because he's over 150 kilos, he would actually get a gram of ceftriaxone. So the dose is a little bit higher for people who are over 150 kilos. 
Um, most people who are less than 150 kilos, you would just go ahead and give the 500 milligram dose. Next, let's say we have a 15-year-old male. He presents with a chief complaint of wanting SDI testing. He says he's had multiple partners over the past month. He doesn't use condoms. He thinks some of his partners may have had infections, but he doesn't know what kind. And now he kind of has a little bit of penile discharge. So this is a pretty high-risk patient, right? He's got many partners, many exposures. He's 15 years old, and we know that teenagers and young adults, people who are between the ages of 15 and 24, are at very high risk for acquiring an STI. And in fact, people in the age group account for almost half of the new STI diagnoses that occur in the United States annually. So this is someone you really have to be worried about, particularly because he's symptomatic and also because of his history. So for him, I would go ahead and give him empiric coverage. Um, for gonorrhea, that would be the 500 milligrams ceftriaxone times one. And because he's so high risk, um, I would also empirically treat him with doxycycline, 100 milligrams BID for seven days for chlamydia. Now, let's say the next day you have another teenager who comes in, and this one is a 16-year-old female. She says that she was called to come back to the ER from clinic because she had an annual appointment, let's say last week, and they swabbed her for gonorrhea, they swabbed her for chlamydia, and her gonorrhea test came back positive, and they said, okay, go get treatment. So she's coming in for treatment. And you're going through her past medical history, and you note that she has a cephalosporin allergy. And you say, okay, well, what happened last time you had a cephalosporin? And she says, oh my God, I broke out in hives and my lips swole up and I was having difficulty breathing. And so you're like, yikes. Okay, well, I don't want to give you ceftriaxone. You have a really legit cephalosporin allergy. So what do you give that patient? So the CDC guideline recommendations for people who have a cephalosporin allergy are to give gentamicin, it's 240 milligrams intramuscularly times one, and then also a two gram azithromycin dose times one. So that is the recommendation for people who have cephalosporin allergy. Okay, and then finally, I just wanted to touch on who needs to be retested. So we have this group of kids, these four examples, um, who've all been treated for gonorrhea, and they all come back to your office. Let's say they come back on the same day and they say, hey, do we need test of cure? Or do you want to re-swab me to make sure that it's gone? And the answer to that is no. You don't need to do a test of cure on anyone unless they have a pharyngeal gonococcal infection. And the reason for that is because, of course, those are the people who are at higher risk for ceftriaxone resistance. And so if you had someone who was having um, symptoms, let's say you swab their throat, they came back positive with gonorrhea, that person you would want to do a test of cure at the end of their antibiotic course. For everyone else, though, you do want to retest them a little while later, about three months later. And the reason for that is because people who have been infected with gonorrhea have a really high rate of reinfection. It's about between 7 and 12%. So for that reason, we want to test them three months after their treatment to make sure that they didn't get reinfected with gonorrhea, either by their same partner, which happens all the time, um, or by a new partner. So that kind of wraps up our episode on the new CDC guidelines for the treatment of gonorrhea. Um, I did want to say that this is going to be our last episode of MD Notified for season one. 
Uh, we are going to be taking a, a brief break and we're going to come back in the middle of June. Specifically, June 16th is going to be the first episode of our second season. And I want to use the first half of the second season to cover topics that are really high yield, particularly for our rising interns um, and rising second years. Just these are things that come up very frequently. We get called about a lot overnight. We get called about a lot during the day and I think are really useful to have a very solid understanding of how these things work. So some of the examples of episodes we have kind of in the pipeline are like interpretation of a blood gas, pain management, being called overnight about bradycardia, just things that we get called about all the time that if you have a really good understanding of them, it will make your life and residency much, much easier. So with that being said, thank you for listening. Thank you for being here for season one of MD Notified. As always, I will put my MD Notified quick notes version of this episode up on mdnotified.com. And with that, we will see you on June 16th. Thanks for listening to MD Notified, a pediatric podcast. References to the information sourced in this episode can be found in the Quick Notes outline, which is available on mdnotified.com. The contributors to MD Notified have no financial disclosures or conflicts of interest. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals in today's episode and do not represent any other organizations or its employees. The primary purpose of this podcast is to inform and educate. This podcast does not constitute medical or professional advice or services. If you are a member of the general public and have questions, please make an appointment with your local board-certified pediatrician.